Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility of a civil war erupting in Iraq following the resignation from politics of the influential Iraqi nationalist cleric Muqtada al-Sada, whose supporters stormed the Green Zone today, resulting in 12 dead. Sada has long rejected Iranian influence in Iraq and has tried to form a coalition with Sunnis and Kurds while fighting against the rampant corruption of a government that embezzles most of the nation's oil revenues that never reach the Iraqi people. Joining us is Juan Cole, a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com. And he's the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World. And his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. His latest articles at Informed Comment include Climate Emergency-Driven Biblical Floods Affect 33 Million People, Leave Millions Homeless, and U.S. and Israeli right-wingers want only one thing in Iran, regime change. And we'll assess the latest crisis in a country on the brink of civil war. Then we'll examine the new report from Danish scientists with the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, who have determined it is inevitable that 3.3% of the Greenland ice sheet will melt, causing nearly a foot of global sea level rise. Joining us is Dr. Richard Alley, the Evan Pugh University Professor of Geosciences at Penn State University, who studies the great ice sheets to help predict future changes in climate and sea level, and has made four trips to Antarctica, nine to Greenland, and more to Alaska and elsewhere. He participated in the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and has advised numerous government officials in multiple administrations from both major political parties, including a U.S. vice president, multiple presidential science advisors, and committees and individual members of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. Then, finally, following the recent announcement that California will phase out all gasoline cars by 2035, we will look into what can be done to electrify diesel-burning trucks that haul most of America's interstate commerce. Joining us is Regina Sue, a senior associate attorney in Earth Justice's California Regional Office, where she works on the Right to Zero campaign. Regina primarily works to accelerate transportation electrification in California and nationwide. Much of her work centers on electrifying the goods movement industry and reducing pollution in the San Pedro Bay ports, the largest port complex in the United States and the single largest stationary source of pollution in the Los Angeles region. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Juan Cole, who is Professor of Modern Middle East and South Asian History at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com. 
and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and his latest book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, and his latest articles at Informed Comment include Climate Emergency Driven Biblical Floods Affect 33 Million People, Leave Millions Homeless, and U.S. and Israeli right-wingers want only one thing in Iran, regime change. Welcome to Background Briefing, Juan Cole. Thank you, Ian. So, Juan, you you have followed Iraqi politics closely, and as though the U.S. has pulled out of Iraq and left it in chaos and as a result of the Iraq war, for the, what, since last October, they haven't been able to put a government together, and today the influential Iraqi nationalist cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, he resigned from politics, his supporters stormed the green zone, resulting in the death of at least 12 people, and he's long rejected Iranian influence in Iraq and has tried to form a coalition with Sunnis and Kurds. So could this turn into a civil war? The Iranians are closing their borders. Tensions are pretty high, are they not? There could well be uh, significant uh, intra-Shiite fighting between the uh, Muqtada Sadr followers who, as you say, are um, Iraqi nationalists, although they inflect their Iraqi nationalism with Shiite theology, uh, uh, they deeply resent Iranian influence uh, in Iraq. And ironically enough, uh, in the aftermath of the 2003 invasion, the groups that were most willing to cooperate with the United States in the short term in hopes of inheriting Iraq were the pro-Iran Shiites. And they tried to, to freeze the Sudr group out of power. And the Sudrists, being nationalists, were not interested in cooperating with the United States even for a little bit. So they often fought the Marines. Uh, and the United States viewed them as very dangerous. Many U.S. observers thought of them as, as Iran-backed, but they aren't. They're Iraqi nationalists. So uh, Iraq, the government that we have now, was formed under the Americans with a bias towards the pro-Iranian Shiite groups who had been in power for most of the time uh, since 2005. And Sutter uh, was attempting to break that hold on power of his pro-Iranian Shiite rivals. And that's why no government has been formed uh, in almost a year after the last elections. Uh, even though the Sudras did get the most seats in parliament, uh, uh, they didn't get a majority. They didn't get a government that could survive a vote of no confidence. Uh, and so they needed coalition partners, and they simply were not able to put together a coalition. Uh, they're considered kind of uh, hot-headed and, and wild men uh, uh, by the other Iraqi uh, parties who are much more comfortable dealing with one another. Uh, and um, I wouldn't, however, take put much credence in Muqtada Sadr's announcement he's withdrawing from politics He's made such announcements in the past, and they haven't lasted very long. So if he's 
not leaving politics and is, is sort of rallying his forces. I mean, what he stands for, as far as I can tell, is a fight against corruption. And the Iraqi government has had a windfall with high oil prices. But there's no trickle-down uh, evident. And he's made it clear that he wants a, an Iraq that's neither influenced or dominated by the West or the East, the East referring to Iran. And back in, uh, I think it was in February, he met with the head of the Quds Force, General Khani, from Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they sat down, and obviously the Iranians want to make a deal with Sada, but Sada rebuffed them and said to Ghani, what does Iraqi politics have to do with you? He challenged him. We don't want you interfering. So what kind of mischief are the Iranians up to? They obviously want to control the country, and Sada is a problem, is he not? Certainly, he's a problem for Iranian uh, interests in Iraq. Uh, and, um, well, what happened was that, that uh, when ISIL, the uh, so-called Islamic State group, uh, took northern and western Iraq in 2014, uh, the uh, Shiite militias mobilized to fight ISIL because the Iraqi conventional military that had been built by the U.S. and NATO collapsed. And so the Shiite militias were the only ones with the will and the arms to uh, to fight the, the ISIL group. And um, they therefore became powerful because they did have significant victories against ISIL. And they were popular uh, with the Iraqi public. And when the fight against ISIL wound down, because now Mosul is, has been taken back and all Iraqi territory has been taken back. ISIL's not gone, but it's a shadow of its former self. It's been demoted to a terrorist group. Uh, when when that fight was over, the, the Shiite militias didn't demobilize. They're still there. They're still armed. And moreover, uh, they formed political parties uh, to represent themselves in parliament. So they're party militias. Uh, sort of on the model of Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, and Sutter deeply resents that these militias, who he thinks should be demobilized, were able to uh, get a foothold in civil politics in, in parliament. Uh, and uh, they've been unwilling to cooperate with him, of course, because he doesn't want them there. And his demand is that Iraq now, having failed to uh, form a government, in almost a year, uh, that the Iraq go to new elections and that the Shiite militia parties be excluded uh, as, as foreign agents. And that has sparked street fighting between his followers, Tata Sutter's followers, and, and the Shiite militias. They are being run, as you say, by the uh, Quds Force, uh, the, the Jerusalem Brigade of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, which gives them training and uh, money and logistical help. And so they are uh, a, a foot in the door for Iranian interference in Iraqi politics. 
And again, I'm speaking with Juan Cole, who is a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World. And his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. So today, this protest, they broke through the barriers into the green zone, the pro Protesters also stormed the Republican Palace, Saddam's former residence, which later became the headquarters of the U.S.-led occupation and now is uh, where the Iraqi cabinet meets. The videos of Saddam's followers stripping off their underwear and jumping in the palace pool. But there have been some pretty bloody battles. Apparently they they went towards Maliki's residence and uh, there was a shootout between former... Prime Minister Maliki's guards and Saada's followers. And as I mentioned earlier, the Iranian government has closed the border with Iraq and they've urged their people, their citizens, not to travel to Iraq. And apparently a lot of Iranians make religious pilgrimages to uh, Iraq every year. So what are we to make of that? That seems to me, to be a fairly dramatic step and might, you know, forebode some kind of civil war. Yes, I, I think the possibility of civil violence between the uh, between the Iraqi Shiites, between the pro-Iran Iraqi Shiites and the Sudras uh, is, is present. I should say, however, that uh, the, the Sudras have invaded parliament on a number of occasions in the past decade. Uh, and so this isn't a new tactic. Uh, and um, uh, because they uh, campaign against corruption and they demand services from the government for the working and poor uh, classes, they, uh, they're at odds with the Iraqi establishment. The Iraqi establishment, as you uh, implied, uh, Ian, is extremely corrupt. Uh, it's estimated that since 2003, Iraq should have uh, $500 billion in its treasury from oil sales. And there's nothing. There's, you know, a moth might fly out lonely if you looked into uh, the Iraqi treasury. There's nothing there. So it's all been stolen. Uh, they, they call these uh, politicians Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Uh, and so there's enormous resentment against this political establishment. And Sutter wanted to break it open. He wanted to change the rules of the game, and he was locked out. Uh, and, and so now his, his instinct when he gets locked out is not to try harder, but to withdraw from the fray in the sense of withdrawing from conventional politics and to go to the street. And so that's what he's doing. And as you say, the, the street can can turn violent as a result. So does Iran have a vested interest then, Juan Cole, in a weak Iraq? Oh, I think so. You know, the Iranians uh, fought an eight-year war with, uh, with Iraq, which invaded them uh, in 1980. And uh, Iraq is their, has, has been their most significant uh, local military rival. Uh, I think they want 
however, an orderly Iraq. They just want their guys in control of it. They want good relations with, with Baghdad. Uh, so uh, what's happening now is not being instigated by Iran in the sense that it's coming from the Sudrists. Uh, but it is, in some ways, Iran is implicated in it because the Sudras are, are trying to unseat the pro-Iran groups, and Iran is resisting that. There is a, a, a wrinkle uh, to Sudder's uh, withdrawal from politics uh, today because he's also facing challenges to his religious authority. In the Shiite system, um, you, you gain religious authority both from having the highest degree, uh, a degree which gives you the authority to interpret Islamic law, and from having a big popular following. So Sutter has the second, but he doesn't have the first. He never finished his studies. So uh, he's what we would call in American academia all but dissertation. He's ABD. Uh, and, and he had gotten around this problem of not having religious authority by depending on a, an Iraqi cleric who, who is in Iran, Al-Qom, uh, Al-Ha'iri, who um, was pro-Sudr, had been close to Sudr's father, and who uh, was willing to accept Sudr's followers as his followers for the purposes of religious rulings and instruction. So the authority in the movement was split between Ha'iri and, and, and Muqtada. Uh, well, Ha'iri uh, has just announced that he's retiring uh, and uh, won't any, accept followers any longer. And he advises his followers to follow Ayatollah Khamenei, the leader of Iran. Of course, Khamenei is an Iranian. So the Sudras are not going to follow Khamenei. Uh, and they would much prefer to follow Muqtada, but they can't. He doesn't have that station. So um, uh, Muqtada, for the moment, has been put in a bind because uh, he has popular authority, he has charisma, but he doesn't have formal authority on the religious sphere. And he's a holy man. He's a, he's a cleric. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think part of his withdrawal is a recognition of this bind that he has been put in. And uh, I, I suspect uh, while he's absent, he'll be trying to find a, a substitute for, for Al-Hairi. Well, the one thing that seems to be absent from our conversation so far, Juan Cole, is the United States. The United States invaded, they fought this war, they uh, lost 5,000 or so Americans and I don't know what the numbers, casualties, they range between 100,000 and a half a million Iraqi casualties. And I don't know, what, at least a trillion dollars, maybe more was spent. Oh, much more. And, pardon? Much more. Much more. Well, what, what are we doing? We've got troops there. We've, we're inside the green zone. They've got storm today. And we've, as you point out, we've made a deal with the pro-Iranian Shiite forces and yet Iran appears to be enemy number one, in, at least amongst 
the Republicans and uh, the Israelis as well. So that's a bit odd, isn't it? Well, yes, um, the uh, the situation with the United States uh, is um, is difficult because uh, the U.S. has 2,500 troops in Iraq still. However, at the end of last year, uh, President Biden declared them uh, non-combat troops. Uh, that they're only that they don't do war fighting in Iraq any longer. Uh, that their only role is as trainers of the uh, reconstituted Iraqi army uh, and uh, advisors to that army on strategy and logistics and so forth. Uh, those troops are, I think, not mostly in the green zone, but uh, at Iraqi military bases throughout the country. Uh, they're spread around. They're doing the training exercises for the, for the Iraqi troops. Uh, and they have come under... Uh, rocket fire from uh, pro-Iranian uh, Shiite groups, and particular, particularly by a group that's called the, the Brigade of the Party of God, uh, which, the, the leader of which uh, President Trump assassinated when he uh, rocketed uh, the head of the Jerusalem Brigades of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, Qasem Soleimani, in January of, of 2020. And so that militia feels as though the United States killed their commander uh, and uh, they want revenge. And so they mob mortars over onto uh, the bases that are holding U.S. troops from time to time and into the green zone. Uh, uh, ironically, this is one of the groups that Sutter's masses in the streets are now fighting against. Uh, so uh, there's an odd sort of way in which Sutter and the United States are now on the same side. Well, Juan Cole, um, I guess we just have to, I mean, obviously there's a great deal of fatigue with the American people about Iraq because of the ill-fated war in Iraq that's left nothing but bitterness and sorrow and loss with no gain except the only gain being that Iran seemed to have won that war. So just in closing, do you think there's a chance that uh, this thing can really explode? Yes, there's a real chance that Iraq could fall into substantial civil disturbances. And we saw a, a civil war in 2006, seven which was fought under the noses of the U.S. military, uh, and, and the U.S. military couldn't do anything about it at the time, really, uh, between uh, uh, the, the pro-Iranian Shiite groups and, uh, and, and Sunni Arab groups. Uh, and now uh, there is some possibility of substantial violence between nationalist Iraqi Shiites and pro-Iranian Shiites. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Juan Cole. Thank you, Ian. It's always a great stop for me. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog, Informed Comment, at juancole.com. 
and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and his latest book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, and his latest articles at Informed Comment include Climate Emergency-Driven Biblical Floods Affect 33 Million People, Leave Millions Homeless, and U.S. and Israeli right-wingers want only one thing in Iran, regime change. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a new study that determines it's inevitable that 3.3% of Greenland's ice sheet will melt, causing nearly a foot of global sea level rise. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Richard Alley, the Evan Pugh University Professor of Geosciences at Penn State University, who studies the great ice sheets to help predict future changes in climate and sea level, and has had four trips to Antarctica, nine to Greenland, and more to Alaska and elsewhere. He's participated in the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and advised numerous government officials in multiple administrations from both major political parties, including a U.S. vice president, multiple presidential science advisors and committees, and individual members of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Richard Alley. Well, thank you, Ian. It's great to talk to you again, and and greetings to the listeners in Background Briefing. Well, thank you, uh, Richard. And what do you make of this new uh, study that was published in Nature Climate Change from... uh, the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. Of course, uh, Denmark has uh, jurisdiction over Greenland. What we're learning from this study is that it's now inevitable that 3.3% of the Greenland ice sheet will melt, equal to 110 trillion tons of ice, and that will trigger nearly a foot of global sea level rise. That sounds alarming to begin with. It does indeed. It's a fascinating study. Really good people doing something that's very difficult, right? So, so you know the big picture. Greenland has this humongous ice cube sitting on top of it. If it all melted, it's 23 or 24 feet of global sea level, and it's ice. And when you you make it hotter, ice melts, and Greenland is melting. It is losing mass. It is contributing to sea level rise. And so far, it's only lost a little bit of what it could do. And so now we're faced with our community. We, you funded us. You, you've said, go find the answers. And we've gone out and we've tried to, to figure out how much ice will come out of Greenland and what it will do to the sea level, and we're finding it's really hard. And I can go into great detail while it's hard, and I hope you'll ask me some of those, and we'll do a little bit of it. But basically, the the best models that anyone has been able to do, put the the ice sheet in a computer and see what happens, have tended to lose mass a little slower than the ice sheet has. 
And so that has caused many people, including the team of this new study, Jason Box and others, to look for other ways to estimate the mass loss. And so this new study has taken a slightly different approach, and they've come up with a, a larger mass loss. And um, almost no version of this is good for coastal people, but this one is worse. Well, we do know that the temperature in, in Greenland has reached record highs, right? Yes. So, so temperatures rising, we are responsible. Uh, that much is, is very clear. And, you know, the easy one is uh, warming melts ice. And what this study essentially does, you know, if you drop an ice cube into your iced tea, the ice cube is doomed, but it won't melt instantly. It takes a while to melt. And in the same way, the, the we have warmed the world around Greenland. And even if we didn't warm it more, some of the warmer parts are committed to melting now in the same way that that ice cube in the tea was committed to melting. And so this new study is an attempt to estimate how much we've committed to melting from the ice sheet. And it comes out to be a fairly large number. So the nearly foot or 10 inches of global sea level rise, what's the time frame for this to happen in? Right. So they're looking at this uh, this century. So um, it's going ongoing. So it's not something that would would come washing in in a tidal wave. It would be slow and gradual and you'd see it coming. Um, But it's, um, you know, we're already seeing the impacts on coasts of of sea level rise. Um, The National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration just had a new study out on the impacts of sort of sunny day flooding, the the floods which are not storms but are still coming on high tides into places that, that people didn't expect floods. You can root around on the web a little bit and find the picture of the octopus that swam into the parking garage in Miami. And you can find the picture of the people putting no wake zone signs from boating in the middle of city streets that have been flooded. So we're already seeing these impacts on the coasts. And then you add more to that, it's not going to help. Well, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration found that an average of 10 to 12 inches rise of sea level by 2050 would cause the most destructive floods would take place five times more often and moderate floods will become 10 times as frequent. And low-level countries, of course, like Bangladesh, would be incredibly adversely impacted. So this is pretty dire, is it not? I mean... It is It is really worrisome. It's, I think, an important point, and you know well... Um, the costs probably go up a lot faster than the ocean does. So, you know, a little bit of sea level rise in Miami and you have people driving slowly through the, the water in the parking garage. But at some point, the, the sea level rise is going to threaten the water supply, putting salt water into places where people get drinking water. And then the cost gets a lot higher. Um, you can drive slowly until you're flooded so much of the time that you think about rebuilding and moving someplace. So uh, somebody could look at 10 inches and say, oh, it's only 10 inches. That isn't that much. But the costs do probably go up a lot faster than the ocean does. The damages go up a lot faster than the ocean does. Well, tell us about 
this term zombie ice, which is how they're <laughs> describing the ice that will come loose from uh, Greenland and melt in the ocean. Yeah, so so it's it's a, a fascinating one. Um, you know, so if you think about the, the ice cube in your iced tea and it's going to melt, um, is that a zombie ice cube? Uh, it's already doomed to die. So if that's a zombie ice cube, then some of the ice in our mountains, some of the rice or ice around Greenland is, is a zombie in the sense that it's doomed to die, but it isn't gone yet. Uh, I thought that zombies had already died and come back to life, but at any rate... <laughs> Right. Well, they certainly make a lot of movies about them. They uh, do indeed. <laughs> but this the question is, are we zombies? Are we well, sleepwalking before the apocalypse? Well, you know, whenever we decide to get serious about limiting global warming, we will have just missed something even worse because of this behavior that uh, each degree of warming is going to cost more than the previous degree of warming. Each um, inch of sea level rise is going to cost more than the previous one because it's moving us further and further outside of our ability to adapt. So we're not dead. We're, we're, I sometimes say humans are the greatest weed that nature ever invented, that any anyone ever came up with, right? So we're weeds, we live everywhere, we do everything, but we're making our lives harder. And the longer we wait to deal with this issue, the harder we make our lives. So we're a weed species. Uh, you know, yes, think about it. There are specialists that only do one thing, and they do it very well. And then there's dandelions that you see at the top of the mountain. You see across continents. You see them uh, coming up through the crack in your sidewalk. I, I suspect that we're more like a dandelion than we are some rare and specialized warbler that has to eat one thing in the deep forest. So... What do you think, then, is the political impact of this latest study? Because these studies are cumulative, and they get worse by the day. Yeah, so I... I don't know. You you understand politics a lot more than I do. Um, what we have known for a very long time is that actions that, if we do a good job of addressing climate change. It is justified for the economy as well as for the environment. And there's a whole field of this and the, you know, the third uh, working group of the, the United Nations Committee, the IPCC, looks heavily at the economics. Uh, the Nobel Prize in economics addressed this, that we are hurting the economy as well as the environment by not taking efficient responses to this. Every time we find something like this that says, well, it, it's going to be worse than you thought if you don't deal with it, we, um, it gets more valuable. It's more for the economy if we take wise actions. And so this one, I think it's a really important thing that the, the economics is quite clear that we help the economy if we deal with this effectively. We help employment. We help our health. We help um, national security. We help um, the environment. And we're more ethical if we get on with this. Studies like this just strengthen that argument. 
Well, you mentioned earlier, uh, Richard Alley, that, uh, and of course, Greenland is the world's largest island and it's covered with a sheet of ice and that if it melted entirely, uh, the sea levels would rise by more than uh, 20 feet. You've been traveling there, what? Nine uh, times, yeah. I, I, I started, first time I went to Greenland was 1985, so I've been at it for a little while. Um, so what have, you, what have you witnessed then over the, the years? Oh, the, the changes are amazing. I mean, it is it is melting. The mountain glaciers are melting. We we really do see this. The um, pictures are stark. I was showing them to, to students on Friday, and um, it's it's going on. This new study just points out that there's a lot more to go. Well, but a lot more to go ends up in the ocean, and it ends up everybody in the world is impacted, right? The yep. entire ocean sea level rise. There are islands in the Pacific that are endangered in, in countries, as a matter of fact. Absolutely. Uh, that, oh, this is it's people's lives as well as their property. It's um, there's a lot of people will have troubles getting out of the way, and so this is it's it's not something to celebrate. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, given that you've you've been a witness to what's happening, having gone to Greenland nine times, and now these scientists from Denmark, which has jurisdiction over Greenland, have come up with this new study, Jason Box and uh, William Colgan. Uh, I take it you know them, right? Yes, yes. Very, very, very good scientists, hardworking, dedicated. Um, and they're doing, the, the, as I said, we're doing something hard here. And um, it's anyone who has walked across the corner of the Greenland Ice Sheet, the idea of taking it and throwing it into a computer is challenging. Um, and so this, this new study will not be the last word, but it's good science. These are, these are good people. They're working hard, and, and they, they've laid it out for us. And what's the difference then between this study and IPCC's assessments? Right. So the IPCC has mostly relied on this this effort to put the um the, the ice sheet into a computer essentially to write the rules that the ice sheet follows to simulate what it will do. The the IPCC is a little more like what goes on in trying to forecast the weather. Um, you put it in a computer and you run it forward. And while we all love to joke about the weather forecasts, the weather forecasts are fantastically good now. And when we were kids, it was hard for a hurricane forecast to tell 24 hours ahead whether you were going to get hit or not. And now you got two or three days warning, and they're right. They they really do an amazingly good job, and they're very rarely in error. So, so the IPCC is trying to put the um, the IPCC doesn't do this. The scientists who are assessed by the IPCC are, have been working very hard to write the rules that the ICE follows to put it in the computer and to simulate the future. And it's just a lot harder than putting the weather into a computer. And I tend to think that our society has worked harder on the weather than it has on the ice sheets. And so that combination of the difficulty and, and really the lack of support for the people doing it, I think, has left us behind. And so Box and Colgan and company have tried an end run around this until such time as those models get better. It demonstrates very clearly the uncertainties that we face, uh, what's possible, how bad it could get. Um, and I think it, it 
This will be self-serving. You hear scientists all the time say we need more money for scientists. I'm not advocating for me. I'm advocating for the people building the big models, but I think they need more support to do what they're doing. I'll be blunt. And are they getting it, at least from our government? Uh, I I think more could be helpful. Um, I I believe that there's the people who have been doing this, the people who put the IPCC together, a whole lot of volunteer effort, a whole lot of really good people trying very hard to do something difficult. And I think that that this is a, the latest demonstration that the the commitment to solving the problem has not yet been up to the level of the problem. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, Dr. Richard Alley, you've made four trips to Antarctica, nine to Greenland, and more to Alaska. So let's talk a little bit about both Antarctica and Alaska. Have you witnessed similar phenomenon over the years? Yeah, so so huge changes in in Alaska, very evident, very clear. Um, the the edges of Antarctica as well. I I visited um, Hope Bay, uh, Esperanza in 1978, and then I was back in 2014, and it just looked different. The glaciers are different. The melting back was happening. The real worries in Antarctica are a little farther south. They're still pretty cold, but Antarctica is a lot bigger than Greenland. And so the potential to do bad things to the ocean is even bigger from Antarctica. Um, the, the usual assessments from the IPCC, Antarctica loses very little of its mass, but it could lose a lot more. Um, it is... It is one of these things that when you look at the projections for sea level rise, if we make it warmer, is sea level is going to rise. It, the ocean warms, it expands, the mountain glaciers melt, the edges of Greenland melt. It could be a tiny bit better. It could be a tiny bit worse. It could be a lot worse. It can't be a lot better. Um, there's just no way that we can crank up the temperature and not raise it some, but there's immense amounts of ice in Greenland and Antarctica that could go into the ocean. And so the uncertainties are, are on, uncertainties not our friend, the uncertainties are on the bad side. Well, Dr. Richard Alley, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian Masters, thank you so much and thanks to your listeners. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Richard Alley, who's the Evan Pugh University Professor of Geosciences at Penn State University, who studies the great ice sheets to help predict future changes in climate and sea level. And he's made four trips to Antarctica, nine to Greenland and more to Alaska and elsewhere. And he's participated in the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and has advised numerous government officials in multiple administrations from both major political parties, including a U.S. Vice President, multiple presidential science advisors, and committees and individual members of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what can be done to electrify diesel-burning trucks that haul most of America's interstate commerce following the announcement by California that it will phase out all gasoline cars by 2035. I'll 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Regina Sue, who is a senior associate attorney in Earth Justice's California Regional Office, where she works on the Right to Zero campaign. Regina primarily works to accelerate transportation electrification in California and nationwide. Much of her work centers on electrifying the goods movement industry and reducing pollution in the San Pedro Bay ports, the largest port complex in the United States and the single largest stationary source of pollution in the Los Angeles region. Welcome to Background Briefing, Regina Sue. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of what happened uh, a few days ago with the California Air Resources Board voting to ban a gasoline cars, go 100% electric by 2035? It has to be good news, right? Yes, it's definitely a significant and historic moment. This is the first rule in the nation that will lead to the end of sales of combustion vehicles. And that also means a shift to all electric, which in California is something we really need. If you think about it, there are over 15 million cars in California and imagining all tailpipes on all of those cars, that's an enormous amount of pollution. And a main reason why California has some of the worst air quality in the nation, which leads to all kinds of health impacts. So you were in, quoted in an article in the Los Angeles Times about this historic move suggesting that, and I know it follows Governor Newsom's earlier pledge, but that in, in effect the California Air Resources Board could have done better and you cite the fact that uh, there are more ambitious targets, for example, in Norway, which plans to phase out all new gas cars by 2025. And in the Netherlands, they're aiming to go to all zero emission vehicles by 2030. And in, in the state of Washington, Governor Jay Inslee uh, set a goal to phase out new gas cars in the state by 2030. So elaborate on that, if you will. Could they have done better? Yes, in Earth Justice's view, California could have been more ambitious here. Um, just historically, California has really led the way in terms of setting vehicle emission standards. And in the United States, California holds a unique position as the only state that can set its own vehicle emission standards under the Federal Clean Air Act. It's actually been a leader in the space even before the federal government began looking into regulating pollution from vehicles. The California Air Resources Board, the agency that adopted this rule, predates the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And under the Federal Clean Air Act, other states can choose to adopt either California's vehicle emission standards or the federal vehicle emission standards EPA sets. And already over 100 million Americans breathe cleaner air under California's clean transportation standards. So it really has a significant effect on not just California, but nationwide. And historically, it's had an international impact too. Part of the reason we have electric vehicle technology and zero emission vehicle technology is because of California's rulemakings. So California's first zero emission vehicle requirement was actually set in 1990. So if you think about it, the idea that other nations now have more ambitious targets, it's a little disappointing that California wasn't a little stronger in its interim targets to get to 100% zero emission vehicles by 2035. 
And I think that's where we're, we, we had some concerns. Cars are on the road for about a decade, running through our streets by schools and playgrounds. This advanced clean cars two rule, it will affect the air we breathe for the next 20, 30 years, and it'll affect our lungs, our heart health. Setting more ambitious interim targets sooner means we would be reducing emissions from tailpipes that are polluting our communities. So Regina, you established that the California targets of getting rid of all gasoline cars on the road by 2035 could be more ambitious compared to Norway and the Netherlands and the state of Washington. What about China? What kind of targets does China have to go all electric? And it's worth noting that I think something like 90% of the batteries needed for electric vehicles are produced in China. Yeah, so China is the largest EV market in the world, and they've been able to grow that market with a regulation that's similar to California. So they require automakers to earn credits by producing EVs. This year, they've already met their 2025 sales target of 20% EV sales. So in the first half of this year, their EV sales are at 24%. And their target is, I believe, 2030 to meet 100% EV sales. And the success in China and other countries such as the UK and Germany that are leading California in EV sales right now, it really highlights the need for strong regulatory standards and incentives, which are really the driving forces that will push automakers to invest in EVs and increase consumer demand. In terms of the battery supply chain, we do need to consider sustainability as the demand for critical minerals used in EV batteries grows, especially as countries are shifting to all electric. The EV tax credits and the Inflation Reduction Act incentivizes EV manufacturers to diversify their energy chains. So under that legislation, cars will only be eligible for the tax credit if final assembly occurs within North America and a percentage of the battery minerals are extracted or processed in the U.S. or countries that have free trade agreements with the U.S. And with the growing consumer demand for EV cars, I think we will see automakers invest in sustainable supply chains for those critical minerals. But what about playing catch-up? Can the U.S. produce batteries that quickly and to fill this incredibly growing demand? And are there other minerals, are there the critical minerals needed like cobalt, etc., are they available in other countries apart from China? I think it's hard to say at this point. It's true that we will need to play catch up. And the Biden administration is doing quite a bit to incentivize that, both in invoking the Defense Production Act, for example, to address this issue, and also with this Inflation Reduction Act, incentivizing automakers to also invest in those alternative supply chains. So I think it remains to be seen what will be done and whether we can catch up. But these signals on the on from the Biden administration are important to get to that point. So given the work that you did in the San Pedro Bay ports here in Los Angeles, which, by the way, are are the entryway for so many uh, goods in terms of the supply chain from Asia, from China, Japan, and South Korea, uh, Vietnam, etc. So it's a hugely important port at both Long Beach and, and Los Angeles Harbor. And you were working there to electrify 
the movement of particularly containers, uh, 18-wheeler trucks, diesel-powered, go in and out of there, delivering containers and taking containers into interstate commerce across the country. And our transportation system for interstate commerce is largely based upon diesel-burning 18-wheeler trucks. So in terms of the ambitious plan in the state of California to get rid of gas-powered vehicles by 2035, what are the plans to get rid of the diesel-powered trucks, which are, you know, you only have to do is travel on an interstate freeway in California and all this diesel being belched into the air. It's, it's a huge fleet of diesel-powered trucks already. I don't know what percentage of the pollution they cause, but, the, the, you know, obviously the nitrous oxide is among the pollutants uh, in the port of Los Angeles as um, the work that you did, it was the single largest source of pollution in the Los Angeles region. So what are the plans to deal with diesel trucks and the pollution from diesel trucks? Sure. And you're absolutely right. Trucks are a major contributor of pollution in California, and that's absolutely a problem that we need to tackle. As you mentioned, trucks are one of the largest sources of smog-forming nitrogen oxides in California and also emit almost 40% of the state's diesel particulate matter. Diesel exhaust contains more than 40 known cancer-causing organic substances and is responsible for about 70% of cancer risk related to air toxics in California. So in 2020, the California Air Resources Board passed the Advanced Clean Truck Rule, which will require an increasing number of zero emission truck sales in California beginning in 2024. So automa automakers will need to increase their zero emission truck sales to 30 to 50% by 2030, depending on the class of trucks, and 40 to 75% by 2035. And 14 states and Washington DC have already committed to adopting California's advanced clean trucks rule. But this is just one rule that the Air Resources Board has passed to accelerate the shift towards zero emission trucks. Right now, CARB is working on the Advanced Clean Fleets rule, which will accelerate the market for zero emission trucks and buses by setting earlier electrification targets for certain fleets. And CARB is expected to vote on that rule early next year and will have its first hearing on this rule this October. But with the Advanced Clean Fleets rule, CARB does have an opportunity there to adopt stronger sales targets and require 100% zero emission truck sales by 2036. Currently, the proposal is 100% zero emission vehicle sales by 2040. And you did mention the ports and the goods movement and the impact that trucks have on our health. And I will note that Communities living near our ports, rail yards, warehouses, and distribution centers, they see such high tr truck traffic that physicians have labeled these areas diesel death zones. So you mentioned the 18 wheelers. A lot of these trucks going these regional routes from ports to warehouses we can electrify them now. Industry experts like the North American Council for Freight Efficiency have said that half of these heavy duty regional haul tractors can be electrified now. And a report this past May found that around 65% of medium duty trucks and 49% of heavy duty trucks in California and New York can be electrified. 
And that means they're driving routes that are well within the range of electric trucks that are on the market today. Fewer than 300 miles between trips to their home base. So given an interstate truck, say one has to go from, say, New York to Los Angeles, with the range that, that are available, you'd have to have a lot of charging stations, would you not? And I think in one of the earlier, I think it was the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there, there was money for charging stations. So given that California, and you mentioned CARB, which is the California Air Resources Board, that they've set these mandates, can the rest of the country catch up and accommodate these needs? So electric truck technology is evolving very rapidly, and we're seeing more and more electric trucks being produced now. And nearly all major heavy-duty truck manufacturers have already produced electric demonstration vehicles or have announced plans for commercialization. And that's because of demand from logistics and freight companies. You you do hit on a very important issue, which is the issue of infrastructure and the need for charging. And as you mentioned, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, it does allocate a significant amount of funding to create a national EV charging network, seven and a half billion. Um, But in the private sector, we're also seeing investments into making zero emission trucking possible. So for example, manufacturers and energy companies are collaborating to have national charging networks. Daimler, NextEra Energy, and BlackRock, for example, signed an MOU making an initial commitment of $650 million to build a publicly available national charging network for medium and heavy-duty vehicles beginning next year. Volvo is also building a medium and heavy-duty charging network project in California that's funded in part by a $2 million grant from the California Energy Commission. So infrastructure and charging is an area that we definitely need to focus on to make this possible. And it's important that there's adequate incentives and funding for both vehicles and the necessary infrastructure. Well, Regina, Sue, this is uh, encouraging what you're telling us, particularly that the transportation sector can be electrified along with the uh, automobiles sector, which is now has to be all electric by 2035, at least here in the state of California. And I think, what, 13 or 14 other states follow California. So uh, it's a big step forward, isn't it, just in closing? Yes, it is truly a big step. And I think what this highlights is that we do need strong regulations on all levels, local, state, and federal. So California and EPA need to continue to pass strong regulations because that's critical to making zero emission vehicles a reality and electrification a possibility. And just tying it back to what we've talked about, this is really critical for our public health. And so um, I think there is a lot of progress to be made and it's, it's good that we're seeing a lot of investment and government action here. Well, Regina Sue, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. It's been great to chat. 
And again, I've been speaking with Regina Sue, who is a senior associate attorney in Earth Justice's California Regional Office, where she works on the Right to Zero campaign. Regina primarily works to accelerate transportation and electrification in California and nationwide. Much of her work centers on electrifying the goods movement industry and reducing pollution in the San Pedro Bay ports, the largest port complex in the United States and the single largest stationary source of pollution in the Los Angeles region. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past